realizing for the first time, that's a joke, by the way, uh, for the first time how challenging this surge work is uh, in both outreach and I guess we might call it in its in-reach goals. In our society, talking about race is just difficult. Welcome to the 457 SEO, a place for stories, information, and observation about Southeastern Ohio. I'm Susan Tebbin. I'm Allison Hunter. I'm Aaron Payne. And I'm Atish Baidya. In this episode, we'll talk to Katherine Jellison, a history professor at Ohio University and a member of the group Standing Up for Racial Justice. We'll talk about her experiences with having conversations on race and privilege in Southeast Ohio. Then, in the latest installment of The Amazing Adventures of Chris Riddle, a conversation about his latest adventures overseas. All that and more in episode 24 of the 457 SEO. Katherine Jellison. I'm professor of history here at Ohio University. I'm also chair of the history department, and I'm a member of the core organizing committee for the local chapter of SURGE, which is showing up for racial justice. Well, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for inviting me. So the first question we always ask our guests on this podcast is, what does Southeast Ohio need? Better employment opportunities. Uh, particularly those that might help keep young people here and uh, grow the economy. And since I'm here talking about surge, uh, I think southeastern Ohio, as part of that, needs uh, of that uh, plan for more economic opportunity and economic growth, it would be great to work on recruiting a more diverse workforce to this part of the country. Uh, I think that we are missing out on uh, great opportunities in terms of, um, you know, human experience and also uh, brain power and person power by not trying to uh, attract a more diverse community of people to this part of the state and who knows one or more of those folks might have brilliant ideas to revive the economy of southeastern Ohio. And so how does how does your work with search how do you see that fitting in? What does what is what's what's the goal of surge? What's what was the impetus for this local chapter to start? Okay. Well, my understanding is that surge was organized after President Obama was inaugurated and uh, members of the white community seeing the racial backlash against uh, our first African-American president and white folks who were bothered by that backlash uh, saying we need to organize the white community. We need to better um, inform members of the white community why some of the ways of, of thinking and acting and reacting toward this president are wrongheaded and that it was a, a good idea for white people to talk about race more and talk about their own attitudes about race and talk about their experiences with people of color and try to get past uh, some of the w ways of thinking that had contributed to this racial or racist backlash against 
not only President Obama, but, um, you know, Mrs. Obama as well. And, and you know, really um, Attorney General Holder, et cetera, et cetera, against many persons of color who were affiliated with the Obama administration. So that is my understanding of the impetus for organization of surge in the first place about nine years ago. Um, so it might not surprise you to hear that the impetus for organizing a local surge chapter was the election of Donald Trump uh, in November of 2016. I think many of us who showed up to that first organizing meeting had the attitude, oh, we didn't know that racism could get someone elected president. Um, and that bothered us, and particularly bothered us that a majority of white f people had voted for Trump, even with some of his blatantly racist messages, um, and bothered us uh, here in Ohio, that Ohio um, went for Trump in the election, bothered us that people maybe that uh, we know in our daily lives and um, interact with on a daily basis had voted for Trump responding to some of um, the unfortunate racial messages of his campaign. And as another member of the core committee said, in other words, all of a sudden progressive whites were facing what people of color do in our society every day. Oh, we have a real problem in this society regarding diversity. Uh, we aren't the people we like, as, as Americans in general, that we like to think we are. Um, and the election of Trump and some, of, some people's reasons for voting for Trump bothered many of us. And the call was put out at United Campus Ministry uh, to just people on their email list saying, you know, are you interested in founding a chapter of Surge here in southeastern Ohio? And if you are, you know, here's the day and the time that we're going to meet and talk about this. And so I, I immediately responded to the email um, from Evan Young, who's the pastor there, and um, Melissa Wales, who was the uh, executive director there, she's since moved on and holds a similar position at the Stewart Opera House. But the email was from the two of them, and I immediately responded, yes, yes, I'll be there. I'd love to be part of this, and have been there ever since. So that was our first meeting was probably early uh, December 2016. So uh, we're in about a year plus mm -hmm. into the into this organization mm -hmm. and the work that you're doing what have you got what has the organization done um, so far and and what what do you think has been effective and and what do you think you need to improve on or moving forward or what well what has that been we've certainly like? done many things uh, one is uh, once a month we've done public uh, programming and had general meetings when where we've invited the general public and for instance um, you may have come across some of our announcements of, of uh, general meetings here at WOUB they're usually announced on the radio you'll see them in in uh, the local newspapers we try to be pretty thorough in our publicity getting people um, to attend our general meetings and we've done a variety of things this uh, last week just a week ago today we were one of the co-sponsors 
of a public uh, presentation by a man who was on death row for, for several years and then was ultimately exonerated. And that was a, an excellent turnout because one thing that uh, members of Surge um, and of course many others have been concerned about too, not only uh, the death penalty in and of itself, but the fact that uh, persons of color, particularly men of color and particularly African-American men are overrepresented in the population of, of people on death row. And uh, the, the person who spoke is indeed an African-American man about my age, actually. Uh, I did the math. He's a couple of years older than I am, but um, was um, convicted of murder when he was only 17. And it turns out um, it, he didn't commit the murder uh, and was several years on, on death row. He was a model. Um, inmate, um, was ultimately paroled, uh, and then ultimately many years later after he was already out of uh, prison, uh, I skipped a point there where he was taken off death row, uh, uh, was taken off death row uh, for you know various legal reasons that I guess I don't need to get into the details there, was put in the general uh, prison population, was a model inmate, started some educational programs, was paroled, and then years after being out of jail, um, at the age of 57, which would be only about three years ago, was finally exonerated. And um, his record cleared, and it was officially um, proclaimed he had not committed this crime. But listening to his experiences about what it was like uh, to be wrongly charged with a crime and then um, to be told he was going to pay the ultimate price for it. It was a very moving uh, presentation and great discussion, great questions um, after his presentation. So uh, it, we're trying to do that kind of uh, programming for the public that brings greater awareness to issues of racial injustice in our society. We, uh, I, I don't, do you want me to go on about other things we've done? Sure, sure. please. Um, one one yeah. project that I thought was really successful, it was a, um, not as well attended as the uh, presentation I was talking about, but um, around Thanksgiving time, we had um, a program uh, at a general meeting about how to talk to relatives you may disagree with about politics or about social issues or issues of race. And I thought that was a, a really good program. We uh, broke into small groups and did role play about how you would talk to, you know, you're supposed to picture the person that you might see at Thanksgiving that you are most unlike and have uh, the have opinions uh, that are diametrically opposed and how you would still begin to talk to this person and maybe talk about some of these issues in a, in a civil and calm and, and um, enlightening manner. Um, Let's see, we've done, we've uh, sponsored films. We uh, sponsored a couple showings of the film um, 13, about the 13th Amendment, and uh, which was um, a very well-regarded documentary that came out in 2016 and uh, was just kind of getting its, uh, you know, uh, broad release in early 2017. So. We uh, sponsored a couple of showings of that documentary last year. And um, 
you know, I guess that gives you a, a flavor of some of the programming at general meetings. Uh, we have done smaller scale things. Um, some of our members have been of the core group have been involved in in just going out and having conversations, um, having conversations at various uh, you know public events, um, sitting at a table with sign. Uh, I, I'm interested in talking about race. Do you want to join me? That kind of thing. Or just, you know, traveling around the countryside, uh, talking to people. Because one of, the big, uh, one of the big barriers that people in the local chapter of Surge want to surmount is the barrier between the city of Athens and the university community and uh, people in the surrounding area, uh, many of, of whom uh, live in... Um, you know, all white neighborhoods and haven't had experience with people from a variety of backgrounds that people who live in the city of Athens or mainly affiliate with uh, the university community, you know, people here in Athens and at the university uh, have opportunities to uh, interact with people of a variety of backgrounds, whereas people living in some of the smaller towns or living out, you know, on, um, out in the countryside, maybe haven't had the chance to talk much with people uh, who are unlike themselves in terms of background, in terms of racial identity or cultural identity. And so maybe haven't had some of the conversations uh, that other white uh, residents of Athens County have had if, again, uh, they live in Athens or uh, have an affiliation with the university. So that's been a project. Uh, we work on things like, I mean, real simple stuff that I think all um, organizations that have a political slant try to do, <laughs> register people to vote, um, inform people about ballot issues. And I'm also have been um, a longtime member of the local League of Women Voters and have served in a variety of offices in that organization, you know, which is a voter education organization. And I find that some of uh, the activities I'm engaged in as a search member uh, certainly intersect with those I'm engaged in as a member of the League of Women Voters of Athens County. So we do uh, also engage in um, some voter education as members of, of Surge. It, I'm fascinated. So listening to all the activities mm -hmm. that um, the organization does, there's sort of the activities that reach folks who are, you know, I'll say in our bubble, mm -hmm. um, but are, are, are sort of in tuned with um, uh, racial issues or have an awareness and want to increase their awareness, mm -hmm. right? And they want to, um, they're consciously trying to educate themselves and, and be better Yes, yes. versus the folks who don't have that mindset for whatever reason or, or don't think it's an issue or, or it's not on their on their radar or it's not in their bubble. And so how do you, it's easy to talk to the folks who are sort of have the energy and, and want to improve. It's much harder to kind of do the things where you're going out to the community and talking to folks who may not have that desire for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think... And you, 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 and you, this organization has only been doing this for a year. What do you think is more important or effective? Uh, 
educating those who have some sort of awareness and want to increase their awareness, or those folks who are sort of starting from from scratch? Oh, Atish, you've asked the $64,000 question because we have found difficulties in, in both types of activities. I suppose people listening uh, to this podcast might think, well, of course it's more difficult to go outside your own comfort zone and talk about race. You know, go to Gloucester, go to Millfield, uh, and, and talk to, to people who, um, you know, don't on a daily basis talk about difference and talk about diversity and talk about race, which in my role as an educator and especially a historian, I do that all the time. Uh, there are some people who've never, as I mentioned before, had those conversations. And so you would think, oh, that's the, the greatest difficulty, going out and talking to sort of a new uh, conversation partner. But um, recently, the members of the core group have been reading a book called Witnessing Whiteness, where we challenge ourselves uh, about our own attitudes regarding race and, and our own um, sense of ourselves as, as white people and deal with the issue of white privilege. And frankly, those have been some of the most emotional and uh, deep conversations uh, as, as we sort of dig deep within ourselves to say, well, what's brought us to this work? Let's examine our own motives. Let's think about ways we can improve our own uh, ways of communicating on these issues, both with other white people, but with, uh, with um, persons of color as well. And so uh, uh, now that you asked me the question, I'm realizing for the first time, that's a joke, by the way, <laughs> uh, for the first time how challenging this surge work is uh, in both it, it, the, its outreach, and I guess we might call it in its inreach, uh, goals. In our society, talking about race is just difficult. Mm -hmm. Is there an element, um, I've always wondered about, um, you know, there's there's people that you, you t talk to, and like you're saying about talking at Thanksgiving, that just aren't going to agree with you. Mm -hmm. So how do you bridge that gap where, where y sort of you know the facts and you have your education the way you have it, and they have their education the way they have it, and it doesn't seem like there's going to be any divide, but you still want to try to, you know, not convince them so much, but educate them. How do you how do you bridge that gap? Well, how do you, uh, uh, <laughs> well uh, my default position uh, always before I, I started doing some of this uh, um, inreach work uh, in Surge was, oh, well, uh, in, we'll just talk about movies or the weather or, you know, you know some safe topics. Mm -hmm. um, I hope I'm, I'm getting better at, at doing the kind of thing I've, I've learned about through Surge, which is to say, you know, you, you and I, um, you know, pers Ms. or Mr. Person who's never going to agree with me politically. Uh, um, you and I may disagree, but let me just explain where I'm coming from and how I developed the way of thinking I have about issues, about politics, about racial identity in, in this society, and, and keep it with this, the I statements mm -hmm. as opposed to you, you should do this, you should do that. Well, 
uh, let me explain to you person uh, who disagrees with me how I came to the understanding um, that I have, how I came to the um, outlook that I have, how I came to my understanding of U.S. society and the issue of, of race or gender or sexuality or, you know, whatever it may be. But of course, since we're talking about surge uh, race. Mm. And um, try to remain calm and, and uh, tell your story, uh, whether the other person is really listening or not and whether they're polite to you or not. Um, and of course that's very hard, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm slowly learning more of those skills through my work in Surge, I think, I hope. Uh, so I'm currently reading um, Brene Brown's new book, Braving the Wilderness. Mm -hmm. And I'm on the chapter uh, where we're talking, in the book they're talking about how you can, how you dehumanize people, how you can hate people, how you other people, and how that, through that process, we can, it's easier to, you know, marginalize yes. them, et cetera. Right. And that in our political climate, the hardest thing, but the most important thing to do is uh, to bring people in closer, mm -hmm. even those people who you disagree mm -hmm. with. Um, and that uh, in through that practice, um, there will be some sort of productive interaction, hopefully. But if you don't bring, if you don't have the willingness and the courage to, to be vulnerable yourself and right. to bring people closer, right. we're not gonna solve sort of th these problems that are, are popping up in our in our climate right now in our society um, do you and you're learning a lot about the work you're doing uh, now through surge this in search that you're doing do you think that uh, are you seeing that affect how you do your outreach yes I think so uh, because I I have learned some things about myself um, and that have helped me maybe uh, see where people who I think I disagree with are coming from. L let me give you an example. Um, sometimes, uh, and this isn't unique to me, but sometimes as an educator, when I interact with students who are from a very different background from mine, I, I <laughs> I'm not as tough love as I am with students who grew up uh, as white, middle-class Midwesterners because I think, oh, well, I know where you're coming from and you're not going to pull the wool over my eyes. Uh, I know you were goofing off last night and you didn't read that assignment. And then uh, I find myself perhaps treating students from a different kind of background in a different way, a more lenient way. Well, is that fair? I mean, uh, giving someone a second chance when I've given some other student only a first chance. Uh, these are the standards of the class. I should expect the same for everyone regardless of, of background. Regardless of background, this is what's expected in this class. Everyone is expected to do this. And, um, and so I realized how um, how problematic my own thinking has been, and I'm not saying I, I've done this across the board, but I do know there were times 
when um, a couple times that come immediately to mind when a couple of students of, of color uh, told me, you know, about something in their lives that made me um, say, oh, okay, you can. You don't have to meet the deadline that the other students have. You know, you can turn that in later. Whereas had a white student told me that, would I have reacted the same way? And so that's some of my own racism. It might, some people might not recognize it as that because they say, oh, yeah, but look, you were just being Ms. Affirmative Action, giving the, uh, you know, the students of color, uh, you know, uh, a more even playing field, but I wasn't. Uh, and so recognizing those elements of, um, I guess, racial bias, um, a bias in this case, both against the white students and the students of color, because I haven't, I have not respected the students of color enough to say, you will live up to this standard. And the white students, I've said, oh, well, uh, you know, I've told you to live up to this standard, but I'm not expecting other people to. And so, oh, that might, of course, that's very different <laughs> from going and burning a cross on someone's lawn, but it's all kind of coming out of the same place. And so it's, it's, it's probably too far to go to say it, it um, that I, probably could ever develop empathy with um, a violent racist, for instance. You know, someone who is threatening people with violence and burning a cross or run, trying to run over a woman with their car, you know, in Charlottesville. But I have maybe a greater understanding that every everyone in this society um, is a product of a society where race has mattered, where race has made a difference, and that um, for white people in our society, there are certain ways in which race has made a difference. So you look at, again, to use my own example, a classroom full of people and start making judgments that you initially might think, oh, are so progressive and very, uh, very with it when it comes to the students of color, but in a way, it, it can be disrespectful because, you know, I need to hold everyone accountable for the same standards. And I, I'll, I'll say it's been several years. This was in my earlier, uh, early years as a college level um, educator where, where I was more vulnerable to that kind of thing. But I recognize it's there and it's maybe something I'm constantly pushing against. Uh, especially, now here, this is a real confession on my part. Um, when African-American students walk into my classroom, probably used to be my immediate thought was, oh, you know, they're from inner city Cleveland, right? And, oh, they, they didn't have the chance to go to the best schools. And, and then, you know, you get to know someone. Well, all of this comes down to getting to know someone. And, oh, you know, their dad's a doctor, their mom's a lawyer. It sounds like the old Cosby show. Uh, but, you, you know, professional parents went to a private school. And so I'm making certain assumptions uh, that maybe um, would have 
made me say in my earlier years as an educator, oh, I'm just sure this person hasn't had all the breaks that they should have had. And so I'm going to compensate for it in, you know, uh, leaning over backwards. Well, um, I know it means something to be African-American in our society. And I know it means that there isn't um, the, the old standard example. You don't have a fair chance on the streets of New York catching a cab, you know, if there's a white guy in a suit and a black guy in a suit. So I know for um, middle class, upper middle class, well-to-do African-Americans, it still means something to be African-American in our society, but I shouldn't be making the immediate assumptions that, um, that it always means you had a childhood that was economically uh, disadvantaged, educationally disadvantaged. It means, yeah, you still have a disadvantage in our larger society in getting a cab uh, because you are still viewed because of how society perceives your racial identity in a way that white folks aren't. But it doesn't necessarily mean that your stereotype is, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, that that you're you're the stereotype that even white progressives, right? Again, that being vulnerable and confessing that white progressives oftentimes right. still have, that, right? That gets into the bleeding heart liberal exactly. side of that, or exactly. and then what comes with that is uh, what can come with that is the subtle bias of low expectations. You, uh, Allison, you've said it better than me. Yes, that's yeah. exactly it. That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. And I, like I said, I feel like. I have made great progress with that, but it's something that I always have to warn myself against. So that's how someone like me, a white person like me, who thinks, oh, I'm so well-educated. Oh, I know such a diverse group of people. Oh, I'm so wonderful. Hey, I still grew up as a white person in this society. So I have uh, certain stereotypes that might pop into my brain that I have to watch against and I have to, to work on. And that can help me maybe bridge um, those gaps I see between myself and, and someone um, who's never thought about these things before because we all, we all have certain stereotypes. Yeah. I, I, would, uh, I would argue that that, yes, but they're also that sort of that because of the racialized society that we live in, it bleeds into people of color yes. as well, yeah. depending on what group you're in. Yeah. It bleeds into all of us. All of us, I mean, yeah. excellent right? point. You know, right. we, we all carry that yes. regardless. Yeah, of but if you start looking at what the power structure is, then Correct. it becomes it plays out differently. So you can think about your neighbor in a certain way, but if you're not in, in charge of your neighbor's finances or whether they get a home loan or whether they're going to be treated one way or the other when they're out in common society, then then that's where it gets compounded and becomes more problematic. Yeah. yeah. See, you didn't need me here. Uh, the <laughs> no, three of you talked about all these issues. No, no. Yeah. Well, and and on that, um, I first became aware of Surge um, maybe three or so years ago, and I wondered, uh, hmm, I wonder when Athens is going mm. to get a chapter mm. because it seems like right in the wheelhouse. And I was very pleased and happy with the idea of a place. So we use our code word of safe space, a safe space for uh, people who grew up 
with a white mindset, if you will, people okay. of white people. I yeah. try to, you know, I was trying to find different ways to say white people because I, it's also so we could talk about that in terms of color of skin, and it's just an easier way to say. But it's also right, a I mindset, understand. right? Yeah. And so, um, but I was very pleased because one, whoo, black people are tired of saving y'all. But right, no, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and, right. Um, and I say that lightly, but for real. And and but a safe place for white people to talk about exactly. society. Yep. Um, to talk about, and here's somewhere in here is my question, to talk about different cultures because it can be hard for people of two different racial uh, identities forced upon them or not. Um, and then we're not even talking about culture because there are different cultures under those of racial course. identities, right? And so it all just gets kind of mashed in. But um, those conversations can be hard. And how do you grow? And I recognize that for whether whether it's um, um, just, and there are some, some cultural um, differences that, and I, I'm, I'm, picking one but one that and especially when it deals with emotion and an emotional subjects and race becomes quickly right an emotional subject but um but i think of these things like some families or some people are loud and we could talk about that as being a cultural thing um and that may fall into a stereotype but when voices get raised that some folks draw draw back and um and i've and that becomes, and I've had conversations with um, white people like, oh, but we can't talk about race because then everything I say means I'm racist and I'm not racist. I'm trying to understand. And, you know, but then the black person I'm talking to gets mad and already gets loud. And then I don't know what to do, <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, it just gets loud. That's all. I mean, you got people in your family who are just loud and they don't mean any harm. But um, but beyond that, yes, one's um, emotion gets involved one way or the other. Um, then it becomes hard to diffuse so and get down to the to the opportunity and the openness where people don't feel attacked one mm-hmm. side or the other you know one whatever side what, when you're just throwing out ideas and trying to work through uh, the messy topic of what it means to be of whatever race in this country you know that's that's made this economic system that trumps all you know but um so within Surge, what is your interaction with minorities? Mm-hmm. Like, do you have, okay, black people do this and white people uh, might do this or Latinos do this, which might sound a little ridiculous because no one race does any one thing. But are there cultural awareness like on-the-ground, boots-on-the-ground mm-hmm. cultural awareness opportunities? I, I think I know what you're asking. Uh, part, of, part of the whole uh, organization of, of Surge, um, and not just the chapter here in southeastern Ohio, um, is built on the idea that we have accountability partners so that we partner with organizations and people of color. <sighs> So we aren't just white people uh, talking mm-hmm. to white people and white people trying to inform white people about what race means in U.S. society. So we've partnered with um, the Mount Zion Church organization. We've partnered with uh, the community of, of Kilvert, 
which is uh, a community that was founded by people of uh, African ancestry. And we have uh, sought out uh, groups on campus uh, that are person of color focused and, and the predominant membership is of persons of color. So we, um, that has been something we've worked very diligently on. Um, it would be, we'd have more opportunities, frankly, if we were the chapter in Columbus sure. or the chapter in Cleveland, but we are in Southeastern Ohio. And so we, we keep trying. And I think that's a very, very, very important part of, of what we've been doing is building those partnerships. And um, I'm pleased about that. Do those partnerships partnerships extend to? Um, I'm just thinking in terms of getting perspectives. You know, all the international student organizations mm -hmm. on campus and yeah. all the different. There's so many. Right. Well, if you're one, talking racial justice, that tends to be American focused. Or well, I'll answer both those questions. Uh, initially, it was focused on. Um, U.S. students uh, in terms of campus groups or U.S. citizens in the community, uh, citizens of color. More recently, we have tried to make uh, more connections with international persons of color here, um, largely at the university, um, but also some members of, of the Athens City community who come from international backgrounds. One co-sponsored event recently was the International Women's Day, Women's Day on um, March 8th. And as one of the co-sponsors, a couple members of uh, the Surge Corps group and I were on the planning committee for that event. And we worked really hard to get more international uh, women involved, and they were primarily people who are affiliated with the university. And in the end, well, we we reached out to the international, um, is it called the International Student Union? Mm -hmm. um, women who were affiliated with that group, and then there's the African Student Union. So we reached out to those kind of groups on campus and ended up getting, I think, very good uh, attendance by members of, of uh, the international student community, male and female, uh, but, you know, predominantly women. And um, and just to, to let you know, uh, also people who do not uh, identify with the binary that uh, are of international background. And I know the other surge member and I who were on the planning committee felt really, really good about how things ended up because it was you know, for an event held in a church basement in the town of Athens, Ohio, if you looked out at the crowd, it, it was very, uh, it was representing all corners of, uh, the, of, of the world. And we were also able to get a significant presence of um, U.S. Uh, community members uh, U.S. citizen community members uh, from diverse backgrounds. And again, for an Athens-based um, event, I was really pleased with how many African-American women from Athens showed up for the event. So 
uh, everyone, it, it, well, it did my heart good anyway to see how comfortable everyone felt in participating in what started out to be, I will admit, a bunch of middle-aged white women like myself organizing the event. We've got to do better than this. And the programming and um, the audience turned out to be much more diverse than that. And it took a lot of work in a short amount of time. Um, but that's been one of the great things about working with Surge is, um, and maybe, you, you, I don't know if you knew it, Allison, but I think you were, when you said, when's Athens gonna get Surge? The time is right. I think it certainly is because Every time we've reached out, there's been a positive response. Yeah, that's good. I mean, believe me, with this accountability aspect, there have been times we've been told, you did that wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's how it's supposed to be. Excellent. But that the doors remain open. And, okay, we'll keep trying. We know that's part of the whole um, philosophy of Surge. We know as white people trying to talk about these issues and be open to new ideas and be open to examining our own motives and our own, I'm going to use your term again because uh, it's, it's uh, Al said it's so right, uh, stereotypes. Um, we know we're, we're going to make mistakes along the way, but sometimes we won't even know they're mistakes unless the accountability partners inform us of that and that we just say, okay, made a mistake, we'll move on, we'll try better, we'll do better next time. And that's been so good for me. That's been really good for me because, especially in the role of a professor, you get the idea that you always have to be right. You know, I have to be the expert on everything. And if I don't know the answer, at least I never played the game of I'll bluff my way through it. I usually would say, uh, and Susan can maybe testify to this as a former student, oh, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll get back to you on it. This is one of those cool times as a member of Surge where I'm not even expected to necessarily be the one who, who goes looking for what the answer is, that there are allies who will um, help educate me. Standing Up for Racial Justice is the name of the organization. What does racial justice mean? What does racial justice look oh, like? Oh, <laughs> gee, Atish. He's asking all the $64,000. Oh, yeah. Making my money today. Why do you keep asking those easy ones? I don't know. I guess we haven't seen it yet, have we? Um, Surge and, of course, many other organizations and projects are working at trying to get closer to that goal of racial justice in our society. I, I know what it's not. <laughs> uh, racial justice is not the over-representation over of people of color on death row. It's not uh, young black men being shot because they're carrying a cell phone or Skittles. Um, or just in their backyard. Yeah, in their backyard or on their way to their dad's house or so I know what it's not. So I or selling loose cigarettes yes, on the I was side of the gonna, road. I, was just I mean, gonna, that whole idea of respectability yeah, politics exactly, becomes a whole other thing. Exactly. Right? I was just going to say, or selling loose cigarettes to to uh, choose an example of of someone not in the bucolic suburban setting uh, and someone a little older. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not just quote black kids. Um, 
in uh, gated communities <laughs> or in their own backyards, but people who are uh, um, in urban America and maybe by virtue of the fact that they're selling loose cigarettes economically on the margins of society, but uh, are treated a certain way because they are perceived a certain way through um, the lens of negative stereotypes. Uh, and so I know we don't have racial justice. Um, when, we, when we get there, uh, <laughs> may be an impossible goal, but we can certainly get closer to it. And what it, what it won't mean is that we become, quote, colorblind, right. that we will remain um, cognizant that there are differences uh, among us in this diverse society, but we don't automatically have to attach um, a negative meaning to that or uh, rely on stereotypes to help us understand what those differences mean. And we would see differences in our, um, very obvious differences, I think, in our system of um, policing and, and justice. Uh, you know, by that I mean legal system. Um, in terms of just uh, moral justice, and I, I don't know why I said just, <laughs> as opposed to formal justice uh, through the system of, of law enforcement in the courts, but I mean moral justice so that we all just treat each other in a better fashion. Um, and that's the harder one, right? Because you can't legislate hearts. Exactly. And so yeah. it's a multi-pronged yeah, approach, you, you right? Can't, you can't pass laws to change people's hearts and minds. And as I'm, I'm sure you all know, um, Linda Brown of Brown v. Board of Education fame uh, has uh, died within the last day. Uh, hard to believe those pictures of her as a little girl. She was a senior citizen, <laughs> 76 years old. Um, and we have to stop and remember, wow, that was over 60 years ago. Um, with that- Only. <laughs> um, well, I'm a historian, so right. that's... Uh, so it's almost in my lifetime. I'll right? yeah. uh, be 50 years old, so you start thinking things like, wow, right, and we all know stories yeah. growing up where yeah. it's just like, yeah, that wasn't very long ago. Yeah, yeah. In, it in wasn't long enough ago. Yeah, in human history, that's a short time. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, like the people I come into contact with most of the time, student people, you know, that's that might as well be in the right. Middle Ages, you right. know? Right. So uh, it, it was over 60 years ago, that decision, 1954, of course. And so, yeah, the Supreme Court said you can't have segregated schools by law. And yet, we still have segregated schools, not by law, but by neighbor, neighborhoods where people end up living because of economic status or racial identity. Um, so uh, obviously uh, hearts and minds in many ways haven't changed and we haven't become more comfortable with the diversity of our society and haven't got at the root of some of those problems that keep us separated from one another other than laws about who can go to school with whom. And that is the harder job. You're absolutely right. And 
I think you phrased it a two-pronged approach. Of course, members of Surge would like um, there to be changes in, in the laws. But I'd say, you know, we're more working on that. Let's change hearts and minds level. When you're out in the community and you're talking to people that don't agree with you mm-hmm. on this topic of um, racial understanding or uh, what what do you hear? What is there a common theme that you hear as to why they are trenched in or entrenched in their position against them? Well, you know, mainly what uh, <laughs> what I hear, and and again, bubble as Atish said. Um, on a daily basis, I wouldn't that under normal, if I weren't part of Surge, I probably wouldn't come into contact with people who talk like that, right. you know. Right. Um, but uh, th- through Surge and, you know, opening myself up to other experiences, um, I, I think it comes down to the idea that you know, I haven't had breaks either. My victimhood is just as important yeah. as someone else's yeah. victimhood, and they are fighting to be uh, to be seen. But who's fighting for me? Exactly. And you know, that's just exactly. what it is, and they don't see the kind of the historic. Exactly. Or well, exactly. Irish people were too, and oh, Italians yes, I were, know. and I, too. I, that, and, that, that is one of the. Uh, standard thing. Well, my people were immigrants, and when they came over here, they, and I always, well, I oftentimes say, and I'm trying to say it more politely and calmly, uh, they came over here, active verb, versus were brought over here. And uh, and laws that were against, because there was a time when if you mm-hmm. were an immigrant or mm-hmm. a foreigner or whatever it was, yes, you were uh, roundly discriminated against um, by power structures mm-hmm. um, in a certain kind of way. Uh, but if if you can change your last name exactly and tweak an accent, yeah, and then you're okay, and and, and you're doing something yeah. a lot of people can't do. Right, you you've you have quote assimilated. Um, well, when I was in graduate school, I took an immigration history course that I've thought about a lot since then. Uh, and we read a book, um, I believe the title was something like The Unmeltable Ethnics. And it was about, uh, in our, you know, this myth of the American melting pot, that any uh, European immigrant group ultimately could pass <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. for white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, you know, even if they didn't go to a Protestant church on Sunday, you get the idea. Uh, just as you said, um, change the accent, maybe change the last name. But for uh, persons of color, you know, that that was was not an opportunity, not a possibility. And, uh, and, and therefore, the level of acceptance by the dominant society was never going to be there. And, and so, yeah. So when I, um, I, t- I taught for a couple years at what's now the University of Memphis. Then it was called Memphis State University. And uh, the politics of race were around me all the time, absolutely all the time. 
which was a neat place to teach some of my courses because th those issues were already on people's minds. But I do remember uh, a class where a couple of students uh, who had um, archetypal Irish names, and you know, I'll, I'll just, these weren't their names, but you know, just as examples like O'Sullivan or something like that, um, talked about, well, you know, my ancestors uh, came over here, let me tell you about them. And I thought right there that that's where they were gonna stop the story. You know, my people had it hard too. No Irish need apply. Uh, you know, they could only get jobs, uh, you know, uh, in manual labor. Uh, but no, both of these young men actually um, went beyond that and said that this is the history I'm coming from, but I understand that's different from the history of what Mike has just told us about his family. And this guy, Mike, was one of the first people, I was in my early 30s, you know, a young professor. Uh, Mike, um, and I will use his name, um, I've lost track of him all these years, his name was Mike Arnold, was one of the first African-American students who really opened up to me and said, well, let me tell you more about my life and let me, and one time he and I went out to lunch together. He was an undergraduate student. I bought his lunch. We were talking about his paper or something. And he said, did you notice when you and I, a white woman and a black man, albeit, you know, I was at, at that point probably t 10 years older, but then he was, um, when we walked into this place, and I can't remember, was it, uh, you know, like the food court at the university or was it a restaurant? He said, we got looks just because it's a black man and white woman coming in together. He was one of the neatest students I've ever had because he, in a very calm fashion, in class with the other students, would talk about some of his family's experiences and would talk about his own experiences and his own perceptions. I would love a, a you know, a whole classroom full of Mike Arnold's. But one thing he told he when he was talking about with these two kids of uh, Irish ancestry in the class, they they were very very they were both named Daniel. The, the two Irish-American students, uh, they were very open too. And they were saying, well, my, you know, like my grandmother, or my, in, you know, this would have been the 19th century, so great-great-grandmother something, all she could do is be a maid. And Mike said, uh, well, it was my grandmother, though, all she could do was be a maid. And if you think commuter marriages were just invented, uh, she had to live in one city to work as a domestic while my dad, my grandfather stayed down on their farmland and she would just come back, you know, on her days off to be with her husband and children. Stories like that. I just wish we could all be telling these stories all the time. And I do try to get more students to, to talk about these things in the classroom. And I'm hoping actually, again, through my experiences with Surge, that I'm asking more of, uh, of the right questions, so to speak, questions that will elicit more of those kind of stories that help people uh, realize their common humanity and yet the differences in history and differences in experience because of um, identity. I mean, so we met, you know, social justice, we met, never have it in the larger society. Uh, we can always work t steps toward it, a greater sense of uh, showing up for racial justice, but I do think it is having an impact on um, my actions in the classroom, asking more questions, 
that will um, bring, well, help the students educate themselves and educate me. And challenge themselves, white and black, yes. and yes. and whatever other uh, racial yes. Yes. Uh, racial column or racial yes. box you're yes. checking. Yes. Um, and one of the things you mentioned in terms of, but and I'm very curious about, and I just had a conversation with someone about. Um, go, and he's a white male, an older white male, and he feels strongly about racial racial justice and injustice. Mm-hmm. And I said, and he's from this area. I said. Yeah, but you railing from here? Mm-mm. Why don't you go to a barbershop in Jackson? Yeah. And have a conversation and be a plant, if you will. Yeah, and, yeah. And, have, and, and meet people where they are because if you have a meeting downtown, yeah. wherever, who's coming to that? And then you're, you're preaching to the choir in some respects. Yeah. But it's the, um, the quiet conversation, the multi-pronged approach. But in terms of that idea of... Um, changing hearts or getting at people just to to think a little bit mm-hmm. you know just to open it up a little bit because somewhere in there it gets conflated with race but it's actually a urban rural yes. divide oh yeah yeah right and right, so right. um and that gets mixed all in oh there there are so many intersections of course and we've been talking for the sake of communicating with one another in literally some black and white terms here but you know there there's so much there's so much intersectionality uh, mm-hmm. going on in dealing with these issues and talking about these issues as well but you're absolutely right i mean what i would love to get better at doing myself is going you know out to the barbershop in jackson and and having more of those conversations with uh, with other white folks and and um you know, as I've mentioned, that's one of Serge's projects. It's something we need to keep working on. It's difficult. Yeah, I would think it's about difficult. Susan had an experience in a in a different um, in a in a county and to talk with someone and she came back like, oh my gosh, oh my yeah. gosh, and it's like, yeah, <laughs> get out of the bubble sometimes. Yeah. yeah, and as a reporter, I have to myself that. right, and as reporters, we're forced yeah. to be out of the bubble, yeah, that's and you true. find ways to that's have true. people talk that's to true. you. Um, and um, one of my, I, I mean, I enjoy talking with people more than reporting on people because I just I like to poke, I like to ask, and you know, if someone says, "Oh, you're a journalist," I had a conversation with a white male Trump supporter, and he's like, "Oh, you're a journalist, you're a liar," and I was like, <sighs> "Oh, well, what story have I lied about?" Yeah. Oh, well, I was like, so, so not me. Yeah. Right. And so right. we had oh some something your identity politics. I said, "Well, what's your identity?" Yeah. Wasn't that your politics? <laughs> yeah. Yo. And having those, yeah. you know, and, then, mean, and that level of engagement yes, on exactly. people and just kind of. Exactly. And that's one of Serge's goals. I think the more we can just talk one-on-one with each other, um, it's, and, and people who don't think like us and people who are from different backgrounds will get closer toward mm-hmm. Uh, a society that's more just. Yeah, it's like you said about but not making slow. it, you have to do this and you yeah. have to think this way. Yes, yeah. that's immediately how people right. shut down is you're trying to convince me to feel a way and I feel a different way. So yeah, that's the experience I've had. Mm-hmm, you're trying to educate people. Mm-hmm. People educate themselves. Trying you just to have to give, yeah. give information, right? Mm-hmm. Keep with those I statements. Mm-hmm.
So the conversations will continue, and hopefully, uh-huh. Catherine, you can come back. Um, um, thank you so much for taking the time to again, speak with thanks us. thanks for inviting me. It's been great. And we hope that you'll come and speak with us again. Okay, thanks. Coming up, the amazing adventures of Chris Riddle. It is time for another installment of The Amazing Adventures of Chris Riddle. Yay! Yay. Amazing adventures. (laughs) (laughs) So you did go on a pretty amazing adventure. I've been following along on your Instagram uh, over the, uh, I'm I'm using air quotes for the folks at home, spring break. Right. You you made a journey out of the country. Made a journey out of the country, yeah. It's, um, well, it all started, I'll, I'll, I'll... some backstory to it. So my wife and my son went to Scotland and England back in August. And while they were there, they're in Birmingham and they went to this living history museum called the Black Country Living History Museum. Now my father-in-law is, he's a metal worker. He's like a blacksmith, does all this stuff. They call him the Lord because if you need it, he can make it. Like one time my son asked uh, about screwdrivers. So he went out in a shop and made him a screwdriver. Like that's the kind of guy he is. So he's been restoring these cars. He restored a uh, Model A, and he recently found, well, about three years ago, he found an old Thames truck. So it's like the Ford company made these trucks in England, but they called them Thames. Um, so it's like this old 1949 panel van, basically. So he found that out in the Dakotas, brought it back to Springfield where he lives, and restored it. I mean, it's beautiful. There are only there are less than a dozen of these in North America. But while my wife and son were at this museum, they ran across this pristine version of the, of, the, of the Thames. And she's like, yeah, my dad has to see this. So at Christmas time, she just decided, let's just take the family to go see this truck. And my, my father-in-law has macular degeneration, so he's losing his eyesight. So we really wanted him to see this truck before, before he lost all of his eyesight. So we just booked tickets and, and went. And if anyone wants to vacation in the industrial Midlands of England, it's Roger Shaw. So that's why we chose to go to the Birmingham area. <laughs> All right. So I, I'm imagining that you did other things besides see this. So we did, yeah, we did. Um, what did we do first? We went to Nottingham, and it just so happened that the Robin Hood pageant was going on at Nottingham Castle. <laughs> so if you've ever been to like a Renaissance festival, it mm-hmm. was like that, but there was no one wearing like a foxtail, you know, because it was like these weird like mashups of costumes at the Renaissance Festival in Ohio where, yeah, they're dressed like a knight, but they have dog ears on. It's really bizarre. Okay. This one was just straight medieval. <laughs> well, when you said foxtail, I'm like, oh, someone's cosplaying as the Disney animated film Robin Hood. So, Yeah, you could go that. Yeah. Maybe that's what they're going for. Maybe. And I just never thought about it. Yeah. But it just looks like cosplay. Right. Okay. Like without the Robin Hood. <laughs> but, so, what, so what was that? Like, are they super into it? Is it kind of like uh, to do a crude translation? Is it like the Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant? Um, no, and I don't know if it's it's because you know I'm 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 going there from from here, but it felt a little more authentic, you know. <laughs> like there were actually people making making arrows there. Okay, and then talking to the person, he's like, well, you know, there are different guilds. So there's a guild that would make the arrow shaft, and then there's another guild that would make make the head interesting yeah so that was cool talking to them and 
So I don't know. It wasn't it. It was kitschy, but maybe not as kitschy as the as the Mothman <laughs> Festival. Fair enough. Yeah. So how long was this trip? Uh, we were gone nine days. Nine days. Yeah. So we did Nottingham, um, and then we took a train to Birmingham. Um, we went to the Cadbury factory, which if you've ever been to, like, like Hershey, Pennsylvania. Yeah. It's like that, but it's, like, a lot better because <laughs> it's just straight-up chocolate. That's – I've heard that when – I have some Anglophile friends that say, oh, the chocolate in America is garbage. The only good chocolate is from Europe. And Cadbury actual <laughs> chocolate is way better than American chocolate. So I've heard that, but I can you attest to that? Yes, or? it's true. Okay. It's very true. Like the there's a what a glass and a half of milk in every milk bar. Okay. You know, it's just delicious. Okay. And and while you're going through this factory, you know, after I got back, I realized I didn't really see anything in this factory. Like, there weren't any – there was, like, a demonstration of writing your name with chocolate and tempering chocolate, which is cool. But that was about it. <laughs> but every time you turn a quarter, some guy's giving you, like, full-size chocolate bars. <laughs> and, like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's worth the price of admission right there. Oh, cool, chocolate bar. <laughs> He's like <laughs> – But how are these are made? Don't worry about yeah, it. Here's you know. another chocolate bar. <laughs> and then you turn one corner, and this guy gives you a cup of chocolate. You're like, what do you want in it? <laughs> and so you can choose, like – like cookie crisp stuff mm. or um, marshmallows or whatever. So I'm just eating straight Cadbury <laughs> chocolate out of a cup. <laughs> like, don't don't talk to me. I'm eating this chocolate. <laughs> Jeez. Um, so you went to a football game over there. Yeah, I saw Aston Villa and uh, QPR, Queen, Queen's Park Rangers. Now, for those that may not watch – soccer in America, the atmosphere of football is a bit different than going it, to an American football it's a little, game. Yeah, I mean, you, go to, you, go to, you go to like a soccer match in the States. I mean, it's almost like the game is, is secondary to what's going on. But, you know, you look at it like Aston Villa has been around for over 100 years. Mm-hmm. So like it's, it's generations of supporters going to this game and it's just rabid. Like you go in, as you're walking to Villa Park, the stadium they played in, for two blocks, it's just it's closed off. It's just people marching to the game, you know. And then there are like uh, food carts along the way, almost like kind of like, like a carnival atmosphere, you know. Then you get to the you get to the door or you get to the gate, and you get frisked, you know, because English football has a reputation. Security, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's just a mass of people in there. And then everyone like before the game and as the game starts, people are singing. Like in Aston Villa, like the main chant was um, was a version of "Riders in the Sky." Like I couldn't quite make it out because mm-hmm. you know Birmingham's got kind of a like a thick <laughs> accent that I don't I don't get. But um, yeah, it was great, and and it was a it was a different kind of family dynamic. There was a there was a family sitting behind me. It was a mom and her son. I think her son was maybe like fifteen or sixteen, and like just the two of them were like just going at it with each other the whole game. They're yelling at people on, on the field. You know, they're yelling back and forth with people they know across the aisle because like, they go to all these games. So, like, everybody knows everybody else in the stand. Mm-hmm. But it was it was amazing. You know, like, this mom and the son are like, I mean, they're like cursing with each other the whole time. And, like, that's okay. <laughs> like, it, it just seemed like, okay, that that's all right. So This is what they do. Yeah. This is their way of showing love. Or right. Something along the But it was great. There was, you know, John Terry, who I don't know if he still plays for um, on the national team. I don't think so. But he plays for Aston Villa now. 
And nobody really likes John Terry. Like, right. He's got this reputation. He used Every, to play for Chelsea. Right. And mm-hmm. now he's playing in the in the championship league. So. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but every time he touched the ball, like both sides, like the QPR fans and the Aston Villa fans, would boo. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Uh, so so it's like there's all this support for the team. Like the whole time, like people are singing and chanting. But by the time Aston Villa conceded their fourth goal, everyone at once stood up and just walked out of the park. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we're done with you. We'll see you next game. <laughs> Love you. Yeah. We hate you. Do better. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's fun. I've always wanted to go. One overseas, two, two, and English football game. Yeah, just because of the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah it was great. Um, yeah. One thing though that surprised me, and I mean, it wasn't a big deal, but you you can buy beer there, but you can't take beer into the stands. So people like down in beers at halftime. Oh, okay. In the concession area, like you could take a coffee or you could take mm-hmm. like a, a sausage roll out there. But which is odd. Because, well, I guess it's a deterrent to drink, but I mean, if I was. My initial thought was, oh, they don't want them throwing beer on the the pitch. Yeah. But <laughs> if you throw coffee on the pitch, I feel like that'd be worse. Yeah, I mean, I was close enough to hit t- John Terry with a coffee cup, so. <laughs> and I thought about it, you know, because I've never liked John Terry. Right, everybody does. <laughs> um, so what what else? What else did you um, get to see? We, okay, so we went to the Black Country History Museum, which is outside of Birmingham. And if you watch uh, the show Peaky Blinders on on Netflix, which is a show about like 1920s gangsters mm-hmm. in England, 19 the, the teens and 20s, uh, they filmed part of it there. So it was really it was cool to like be there and recognize places at this museum that are in the show. So like there's a place where this canal comes up against um, like a metalworking place. I was like, oh, I've seen that in the show. That's mm-hmm. where Curly is. Where's Curly? <laughs> um, but the great part was was seeing my father-in-law when we got there. We went to the main garage where where this Thames truck was before. And it wasn't there, but he got to talk to the curator who knew everything about every car ever made in England. So, like, we sort of just left my father-in-law and, and the curator <laughs> there for a while. Um, then we walked down a little ways, and there's um, – it's a setup of an old, like, country fair. So they've got, like, a helter-skelter, and they've got a candy stand there, so we're getting some candy. And we walk around the corner. There's another garage, and there's the Thames truck. And so he walks over like, hey, Roger, come on over here. <laughs> And there was a guy in there working on it, so he talked to him for probably an hour. <laughs> and he's, like, asking the guy where he can get spare parts and things like that. Mm. So that was great. I mean, that was what the whole trip was for. Right. So it was it was, it was wonderful to see that. So other, other than chatting up the curators and the, the people working, the maintenance people, what, how did he, how did he react to it? Um, was well, it, like, what you would expect? Or yeah, I mean, you know, Roger doesn't have a lot of emotion. Right. You he's know, a stoic so, man. <laughs> yeah. He makes screwdrivers. He, I... I stereotype him to be a stoic. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a skinny man with a big beard, sort of longish gray hair. Doesn't talk a whole lot if he doesn't have to. So, but gotcha. he, I respect he talked that, that guy's ear off, which was which was great. Yeah, um, that's good. Yeah. So after uh, Birmingham, we went to went to London for a few days. Um, went to the Tower of London, and in the White Tower, which is like the original part. So when you look at the Tower of London, it's it's the tallest of the towers in the Tower of London. So it was built by uh, William the Conqueror, like in 1068 or 1069. But as you go up, they have, in, into the tower, there's a floor where they have example, or they have like the armor of different kings. You know, some of it's authentic, some of it's not. But <laughs> Henry VIII's armor is, is, is authentic. And so when we got back, I was talking to, uh, I was talking to my son, who's, he's almost eight. And he was talking about the Tower of London. I was like, "Well, what, do you, what what's your what's your favorite memory from the Tower of London?" He's like, 
I like the night with the metal wiener. <laughs> and I had to, I was like, what? Metal? And then I realized he was talking about Henry VIII's suit of armor, which has this enormous cod piece. Mm-hmm. So now my son walks around using the word cod piece. <laughs> and I've had to explain what overcompensation means. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. But it was a lot of fun. And, and, and you know, the thing is, like, I realized because we drove, we drove from Athens to Dulles Airport outside of D.C. and then flew over to Germany then then to England. So, you know, it took us like 18 hours total travel time. Mm-hmm. You know, it took like my family six generations to go from England to uh, you know, Ritchie County. <laughs> so, you, know, you, you can do that in just in, in a few right. hours now. <laughs> time marches on. That's right. So, yeah, it was a great trip, though. We had, we had a good time. Yeah. So I, I have a question. You you said you were in this industrial kind of manufacturing part of England. Mm-hmm. How would how would that translate to? Did you see any similarities with Southeast Ohio? Um, maybe not Southeast Ohio so much. Like Black Country, sort of, because you don't know, got would the mining. Been, would that? Yeah, but would that? I guess that would be more like a um, north northeast kind of the manufacturing part um yeah it's outside of birmingham so it's sort of um it's it's like the northwest or or the west central part of england west central yeah and as you got out to uh, to black country because they had they had the steel making but they also had the coal there so you've got like that like coal culture that goes along with that Mm -hmm. so yeah there were there were a lot of similarities um i felt like in birmingham i felt more um it felt more like pittsburgh you okay. Know? Like there was a real sort of like that same vibe you get out of Pittsburgh where they have like, you know, he had all the iron iron working and steel mills there and mm-hmm. they had that in Birmingham too. So kind of like, you know, the industrial feel. Yeah. Like that blue collar. Is is it in a similar state as to Pittsburgh where it's kind of steel isn't quite as big a driver of the mm-hmm. economy as it yeah. used to be and they're still coming to grips with diversification of economy? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't I wouldn't be able to go in depth about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I would. I, it feels like it. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna speculate on that. But. Yeah. Well, we went. We yeah. went with a friend of ours out, and he's like, we, we were we were talking to Pub, and he's like, you know, I'm really starting. You know, I don't like American football, but I'm starting to watch hockey. So who should I watch? And I was like, <laughs> well, you know, Birmingham feels a lot like Pittsburgh, so you should watch the Penguins. There you go. And I was like, I could say Columbus, but I'm gonna go with the Penguins for you. Right. And <laughs> the Penguins have a history of performing well. So yeah. Yeah, the Blue Jackets are doing okay right now. Right, the Blue Jackets they make their runs. Yeah, but the Penguins have tradition. Right, so. <laughs> <laughs> and that was something about soccer is I, I invited him to go with me to see um, see Aston Villa, mm-hmm. and there are two teams that play like two main teams that play in, in Birmingham. There's Aston Villa and there's Birmingham. So I was like, yeah, do you want to go? And he's like, my father would be rolling in his grave if I went to a Aston Villa. <laughs> I'm a Birmingham fan, so it's <laughs> like, okay, fair enough. Birmingham is that the Wolves? No, that's Wolverhampton. Wolverhampton. Yeah. Ah. See, there's just so many, there's just know, so right? many teams. <laughs> uh, I'd never be able to. Keep, I guess if I lived there and had grown up in it, I'd yeah. be able to keep it straight. But just as an outside observer, there's just far too many teams and that's far true. too many divisions. Yeah, and, that's the, that's the <sighs> thing too about 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 soccer over there. It's like people will support their teams. So even if their team isn't in like. The Premier League, mm-hmm. you know, they're second or like third division. They're like, this is my team. That's who I support. Right. You know, and I don't support anybody else. Right. So, oh, tradition. Yes. Yeah. 
So what is next on the agenda for Chris Riddle? It's warming up. It's going to be the weather will finally get good. It doesn't seem like it at the <laughs> I time. I don't at, know, you know. At the time of recording, we recorded this on uh, April the 2nd where it had just snowed. Yeah. And apparently the next day it was supposed to be it's supposed to be like 70-something. 75 with showers then, and thunderstorms. But only yeah. for like an hour or so. And then right. it goes like it. It's like a roller coaster up and then down. Yeah. So. I every time I go outside, I'm like, you know, you see like the trees are blooming and flowers starting to come up. And I'm right. like, yeah, it's over. And then it snows <laughs> yeah. and you're like, come on, man. It's like, come on. Come on. Just like see something <laughs> bloom, you run outside. I'm like, no yeah. way, don't. <laughs> I was like, I have to mow the grass. Yeah. Oh, it's snowing and there's yeah. an inch on the ground. Right. Um, yeah, I think we've got a friend of mine who lives in D.C. We're going to meet in Pittsburgh and um, cycle the towpath between Pittsburgh and D.C. So okay. The, Gap Trail and all that. Yeah. So we're gonna do that probably. I think late June is what we're thinking. At. Does that does that go from? Does that just stay in Pennsylvania and? Uh, it goes Mar- down into Maryland. Maryland. Too, yeah. yeah. How how long is the trail you're planning on riding? Uh, it's over 300 miles. I don't remember the exact number. It takes about a week to do. So. Now, do you, do you camp on the? Mm-hmm. Bar- yeah. Okay. My friend's like, well, we could stay in a hotel. I was like, well, you can stay in a hotel. I'm just gonna right. camp the whole way. Right. Right. Cheap, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Working public radio. Right. <laughs> I mean, camping and public radios just seem to go. Yeah, right. End. Right. Like that should be a thank you gift. And like, here's your, you know, here's your tent, here's your tent and sleeping bag. Here's your cool backpack. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, anything else? I don't think so. I'm not doing anything exciting right now. All right. I'm just sitting around. And All right. For spring. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> then we'll have to we'll have to wait till you do something exciting before you're allowed back on. Yeah. That, All that right. the rules. I know. I know. <laughs> I'll try to up my game a little bit. (laughs) Well, this has been fun. It's always interesting to hear about your adventures and to live vicariously through you, at least personally. So (laughs) I appreciate it. So thanks for dropping by. Hey, thanks. See ya. And that's it for this edition of the 457 SEO. Our thanks again to Chris Riddle and Catherine Jellison for joining us today. 457 SEO is a production of WOUB Public Media and recorded in the WOUB Telemix Studios. Our producer is Adam Rich. Our original music is composed by Nathan McGuire. Our editor-in-chief is Allison Hunter. I'm the editor. You can catch 457SEO wherever you get podcasts. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Play. That's also on SoundCloud. And you can find it at the WOUB Listen page. Or you can just search the 457SEO hashtag on our website, WOUB.org. And if you feel so led, you can leave a review for the podcast. We're looking for those five-star reviews to help us get the word out to other listeners of podcasts and if you leave us a comment that is constructive that'll help get what you want on this podcast so again thanks for listening i'm aaron payne i'm allison hunter i'm susan tebbin and i'm atish baitya thanks bye